Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Joshua chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 28 and then uh, verses 40 through 43. You can follow along in your own Bible. Uh, There's a pew Bible. Uh, You probably have a Bible on your phone and it's also printed for you in your bulletin. You can follow along there if you'd like to do that. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. My name is Sean Slade. I'm the pastor here and we're so glad to have you, especially this morning, because we know that there are a million other things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be unpacking from fall break travels. Uh, You could be combing your tongue after all those cigars you smoked last night. Uh, You could be trying to sell some of that goalpost on the eBay. Or you could be at brunch taking Chase McGrath out after that, uh, after that field goal kick. But you're not doing any of those things. You're here with us. It's great to have you. And the reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time uh, than worship Jesus, consider his claims upon your life, and think about the kindness of his salvation. And so I really do want to thank you for joining us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world uh, to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. We love to hang out. We love to like chili cook off with a brass or gold ladle. Uh, we love to like read. Uh, but what we really love to do is read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of that great love that God has for us in Jesus. And so as we rest in his love, as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban University, Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. We're a people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that, we're in the middle of this series that we've entitled, Great is His Faithfulness, Reflections on the Book of Joshua. And just as we say each week, this book of Joshua is a really difficult book. And if you've been with us for a while, you've recognized how difficult it is. It, it's filled with conflict. It's filled with war. It's filled with judgment. And at many points as we read this book, it feels so culturally distant. And some of you have said it feels so Old Testament because it's in the Old Testament. But my hope for us is that however we come to this text, however we come to this service this morning, whether you come uh, in the midst of dark and disappointment, whether you come with confusion or frustration, whether you come in joy or in sorrow, the thing that we'll all come away with, the thing that we'll all see is that God is faithful, that God is faithful. And so this morning, what I want us to consider is the faithful fight of God, all right? The faithful fight 
of God. So with that in mind, let's look together. Joshua chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 28, and then 40 through 43. There's some hard words in here, so just bear with me as I make up how to pronounce them. All right. So, uh, as soon as uh, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than I and all its people were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Yarmouth, to Jaffa, king of Lachish, to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmouth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For we are all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, and he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Achaia and uh, Makeda. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Achaia, and they died. And there were more who died because of the hailstorms than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord and in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. Uh, and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Yashar, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day? There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua the five kings had been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has given, given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained with them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmouth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. 
And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. Then uh, verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Uh, the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, this is uh, a lot. Uh, this is um, a difficult text. Uh, and, uh, and yet we are thankful that you are a God not hidden or silent. But you're one who loves to make yourself known. And you've done it in your word, by your spirit. You've done it in the person and work of Jesus. And so it's our prayer now that as we attend unto your word, that you, uh, by your kindness, would attend unto us. That we would see lovely and beautiful things of you in this your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I'm not sure if any of you have seen this hip, cool uh, new musical that I'm going to bring to town for my wife's birthday. It's called Hamilton, and it's a musical about this guy named Alexander Hamilton. And anyway, uh, it's about a lot of things, uh, but the circumstances of the musical are really about the founding of America. And one of the comedic scenes is when the King of England comes and he sings a song to America, and he says, uh, you'll be back. Soon you'll see, you'll remember you belong to me. You'll be back, time will tell, you'll remember that I served you well. Oceans fall, arise, empires fall. We have seen each other through it all. And when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. And that's sort of what's happening here in our passage. These five kings, they are mad. They have put on their angry eyes. They are angry that the Gibeonites have formed this covenant uh, with Joshua. We talked about this last week. You might remember that the Gibeonites had heard that God was giving the land to Israel and that no one, not Bashan, not Heshbon, not Jericho, not Ai, not Egypt, no one could stand before God. And so the Gibeonites then fled to Joshua and to God's people seeking God's mercy. And when they left that coalition of all the nations in the land, those five kings became angry. And they were angry, we see in verse 2, because the Gibeonites were a great city, a royal city filled with warriors. And so they wanted the Gibeonites in their coalition. 
and they wanted the Gibeonites to rise up with them and fight against God and fight against God's people. But when the Gibeonites left this coalition, right, uh, that they'd been trying to form, uh, like the king of England, they wanted them back. So much so that they didn't send one fully armed battalion, but five fully armed battalions to remind them of their love. Right? Da, 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 da. And, and this is a big deal, right? Because even though the Gibeonites uh, were strong warriors, they did not stand a chance uh, against these five armies. And so they cried out to God. They cried out to Joshua for help. And when they cried out to Joshua for help, this created a moral dilemma for Joshua because you'll remember that the Gibeonites had come to Joshua and they had said, look, your fate uh, or our fate is in your hands. Our fate is in your hands. And what happens to you will happen to us. So Israel made this promise to protect them and to include them in all of the merciful promises of God. And so now in order for Israel uh, to be faithful to their word, they now had to offer their lives in protection of the Gibeonites. Now, I don't know if that sounds familiar to any of you, but it's basically the story of the Bible, it's basically the premise of the gospel that, that our God has entered into a covenant with his people. And by entering into this covenant, he's promised to love us and to protect us and to provide for us and to fight for us and to deliver us from all of his and our enemies. And so having heard our cries for mercy at just the right time, God sent his son Jesus from heaven to come and dwell among us. And he came down from heaven. And by coming down to earth, what did he do? But he gathered his people to himself. And as he gathered us to himself, he began to fight for us, to free us from the powers of darkness and from the powers of evil, to free us from the guilt and the power of our sin, even to free us from that great enemy of death. And how is it that our faithful covenant God fought for us? He gave his life. And that's the point of this text. This text is pointing us in that direction. And it, and it is reminding us that God faithfully fights for his people. Right? That God faithfully fights for his people. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. Right? That God faithfully fights for his people. Now, as modern readers of the Bible, we often don't like this idea that we have a God who fights. Uh, but I'm not sure exactly why we're bothered by this. I mean, the whole Bible uh, and all of our confessions uh, rejoice in this confession that God will come and when he comes, he will judge and he will judge justly. And the reason that we rejoice in the fact that God will come and judge justly is because the kingdoms and the kings and the nations of this world do not judge justly. But we have a God who will come and sees all things and knows what is true and what is right, and he will judge justly. And so the Bible rejoices in this. The confessions rejoice in this. And we rejoice that we have a God who then rules us and defends us as his people. And the reason that we rejoice that we have a God who rules and defends us and fights for us is because all of us know 
that we need to be saved from our enemies. We all know that we need to be saved from the world, the flesh, and the devil. We all know that we need to be saved from the realities of sin that are out there and the realities of sin that are deep in here. And we all know that we need to be saved from the fact that death is coming for all of us. But I think it's also important for us as modern readers to ask ourselves, why are we bothered by a God who promises to fight against evil? Why are we bothered by a God who promises to protect his people? If our God will not stand in judgment over evil, and if our God will not do what he says and protect and fight his people and bless those who seek refuge in him, then we'd have another question to ask. Is our God any good? Is he any good? And this is really important because um, if we were an oppressed people, we would rejoice in a God who would free us. If we truly recognize the way that our sin oppresses us, we would rejoice in a God who frees us. If we truly were staring death in the face, you would want a God to rise up and fight for you and deliver you. But for some reason, as modern readers, when we read the Bible and we see God intervening to fight for his people, uh, it's our temptation, it's our tendency to call him a bully or to say that he's a moral monster. But those of us who have been liberated by his grace, we see him as a hero. And as we come to this text, the point of this text is not to celebrate and glorify the violence and the war in this passage. The point is for us to see that we have a God who protects and defends his people. And that he is a liberator, a hero, and the savior of his people. That he fights for us. In this fight, I want you to see that he is faithful one of the things that I find interesting in this text is that the five kings, verse 1, heard. And what did they hear? They heard of all the victories of God and his people. And this is the very same way that Joshua chapter 9 began. The nations heard, they gathered, the Gibeonites heard about the power of God and the glory of God. They heard the coming judgment. They heard that there was no one who was able to stand before him. And so what did the Gibeonites do? When they heard, they fled to God. They fled to him. And by fleeing to him, they received his mercy. And they came under his care. But these five kings, when they hear, rather than fleeing to him, what do they do? They gather together to fight. Rather than fleeing to God, they gather together to fight against him. And they said, God, you and your people, you have no place among us. And so they gathered together to go to war against the Gibeonites, all because the Gibeonites had chosen to identify with God rather than the kings of the land. And I think that this is incredibly instructive for many of us because it seems to me that most of us think that when we flee to Jesus or when we begin to identify with Jesus, that all of the battles in our life uh, will come to an end and we'll just be filled with peace. Here's the deal. When you flee to Jesus, 
you are at peace with God. God is at peace with you. When you flee to Jesus, there is peace with God. But when you flee to Jesus, you are no longer at peace with the world, the flesh, or the devil. And I think that this is very important for us to think about because I think so many of us have these false expectations about our life with Jesus. And so we come to Jesus and then we're confused by the struggle. We're, we're confused when bad things happen. We're confused when we mess up. We're confused when life gets frustrating. We're confused by our disordered desires and these things that we call battles. But here's the deal. When we flee to Jesus, that's when the battle actually begins. That's when the battle actually begins. And the battle begins because Jesus is wanting to root out every false king in your life. And he's rooting these things out in you, not because he hates you, not because he's angry with you. He wants to root these things out in your life because he loves you. I want you to think about this passage, right? The kings of the land, they are mad at the Gibeonites. And they are mad at the Gibeonites because the Gibeonites said, look, we are no longer with you. We are now with God. We are not with you, we are with God. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means that your fundamental uh, allegiance changes. That's what it means to be a Christian. That we no longer fundamentally view the world through critical lenses of economics or politics or athletics or winning or losing or race or sex or gender. Instead, we say, I am with Jesus. And where he leads, I will go. And what he says, it is true. And what he says, I will do. And his fate will be my fate. I will follow him wherever he would lead me. And this is important for us because I think we have come into a culture that has begun just to fall into these easy binary litmus tests. And so we say, you're either a Republican or you're a Democrat. You're a male or a female. You're privileged or oppressed. You're affirming or non-affirming. American or something else. You're a mathlete or you're an athlete. And then we try to understand our Christianity through those lenses. And it's those lenses that are trying to make sense of our Christianity. And they become our chief allegiance that we're trying to bring Christianity into. Even in our own Presbyterian history, like many of the denominations around us during the Civil War, uh, we divided into the Northern Presbyterian Church and the Southern Presbyterian Church, the UP and the PC uh, US. And what happened when we did that was that uh, our allegiances and uh, our unity were not in Christ at that moment. They were in our country or in the country of our choosing. Even when we think about our own, the name of our own denomination, the PCA, people often say it's the Presbyterian Church of America. We are not the Presbyterian Church of America. We are the Presbyterian Church in America. Now, I'm not trying to make a big deal. I'm making a big deal about these little words, but they're very important. This is theologically and practically important because our allegiance is not to our country. Our allegiance is to God himself. And so some of these things are important. Some of these things are significant to some extent. But when we flee to Jesus, what that means is that first and foremost, we say, I'm a Christian. 
and my life is in his hands. I'm fundamentally a Christian. That is who I am. And my life is in his hands. And this is why the kings of the world often get frustrated us with us. Because our confession is simply this, Jesus first. That's our confession, Jesus first. And what is interesting is that the kings of the earth love us when we serve them. But when we don't, they turn on us. And so we with the apostles in Acts chapter 5 must say we must obey God rather than men. It's not merely political, but it's also spiritual. It's those kings that have been set up in our hearts. I mean, when you think about the king of beauty, right, what does the king of beauty do to you? It constantly demands that you look better. And every look in the mirror is a statement of judgment, And it is constantly telling you to work out more, to eat less, to eat less, to eat less, to spend tons of money on these surgeries that are going to make you look younger. And what does this king do? This king leaves you tired and hungry, having less money, and ultimately ugly. I want you to think about the king of approval. The kings of approval demand that we serve them and demand that we make everyone happy and demand that we never rock the boat. And they tell us who we can be friends with and who we can't be friends with and what clubs we can join and what clubs we can't join and what neighborhoods we're supposed to live in and what schools we're supposed to send our children to. And then we go to parties and we're yucking it up with all the right people. And then we go home and we we replay every conversation in our head wondering if I made somebody mad. And we stay up late sending emails. I hope I didn't offend you when I said, I hope everything's okay. And what does this king of approval do? It leaves us stressed out and alone. I want you to think about the king of success, which is demanding more and more productivity, more and more efficiency, more and more competence, crushing our competition. And no matter how often we try to encourage one another with pithy little statements, like if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, the reality is this in our day and age. When you fail you're a failure. And that failure just goes with you wherever you go. Or think about your addictions. Uh, If the king of addiction is a part of your life, you know that it constantly promises, uh, I'll make make things okay. I'll help calm things down. Everything will be all right. We'll be happy. We'll have a good time. Just one more drink. Just one more hit. Just one more gummy. One more parlay. One more look. And everything will be fine. And if you have ever tried to stop serving that addiction, you know that your body rises up to fight against you every step of the way. Right? These kings demand our service. And when we try to give ourselves to another, they rise up to fight against us. And this is what was happening with the Gibeonites. They said, we will serve Yahweh And when this happened, they became enemies of the kings. And I don't know why we're often surprised by this. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen, right? Jesus had washed his disciples' feet there in the upper room, and he said, look, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, 
therefore the world hates you. And I think this is really important because I think often we think that the battles that are part of our life reveal uh, that there's something wrong with us or that God must not love us or that he's mad at us or that we're not really Christians. When in fact, these battles might actually just show us that we actually belong to him and that he is fighting for us. And what I find encouraging in this text is that, that God remains faithful to fight for his people you notice in verse 6, the Gibeonites, they're asking Joshua for help. And so Joshua rises up, he gathers the Israelites, and they go on this 15-mile hike through the night to help their brothers and sisters. And there's a little sermon in this that we don't have time for, but you do need to notice that the battles of our brothers and sisters, the battles that they are going through, they need to be important to us. Their battles became Joshua's battles. And Joshua then gathered, verse 7, all of Israel, all the people of war, all the mighty men of valor, and they went up to help. But there's more to this sermon. It's not just that the people of God gather and fight and encourage, uh, fight for and encourage one another. But what's really powerful here is that God himself rises up. To fight. And notice verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Do you hear that? What he's saying is that the battle has already been won. He's already declaring the end. He's declaring the victory. And he's saying, you can fight, you can rise up and battle. Why? Because you will win. And the reason you'll win is because God is fighting. And, and that's the point of the way the Bible ends, right? In the book of Revelation, in verse 21, God tells us up front how all these battles are going to end. We're all going through battles. We're all afraid in this world. And so God, in his kindness, gives us Revelation 21. He says, this is how it's going to end. He says, I will dwell with you. You will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And what he's saying is you can keep fighting. You can fight these battles because I will win. He doesn't say fight the battle so these things will come true. What he says is you can fight because this is true. And your enemies will not win. Your sorrows, they will not win. Your sin is not going to win. Death is not going to win. Because God is fighting for you. He says in verse 14, he says it again to end the passage in verse 42. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Do you hear that? They are victorious because God had fought for his people. And how is it then that God fights? Well, first we see that God in his kindness is willing to answer the prayers of his people. And you see this in verse 14. There had been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man for the Lord fought for Israel. What this is telling us is that our prayers matter. That the father who listens to the son Jesus as we pour out our prayers to him intercedes on our behalf and the Lord, the father, hears our prayers. And when he hears our prayers, he rises up to defend us and to rule us and to fight for us. 
And then notice the extent to which he fights in verse 10. He threw the people into panic. He struck them with a great blow. He chased them and he struck them. See in verse 11, the Lord threw down large hailstones from heaven on them. And there were more who died because of the hailstones and the sons of Israel killed with the sword. It's not Israel. It's saying it's God who had fought for his people. And then notice in verse 12 through 14. The sun and the moon stopped in the heavens. And there are lots of ways that commentators like to interpret this event. Uh, Many uh, would say this is a miracle. Uh, Those of us who believe in miracles would say this is a miracle. Others would say this is a hyperbolic way of talking about a very long day's uh, battle. Others would say this is a heroic account of a battle elevated uh, the power and the glory of God. But here's the point that's being communicated. That God is willing to move heaven and earth to defend his people. That God is willing to defend, to move heaven and earth for the salvation of his people. Now again, this is a specific battle uh, and it's at a specific time in history, but we've got to ask the question, uh, why this particular battle? Like lots of other battles happen in the world that aren't recorded in the Bible. Why is this one recorded in the Bible? And how does this story then fit into the flow of biblical history? Well, I'll try to make this quick. Uh, This battle is the embodiment of Psalm 2. If you know Psalm 2, it goes like this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them with his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, when you think about this, this passage, Psalm 2, Joshua 10, it serves as a warning to us. It serves as a warning to all who refuse to bow their knee to the true king. And what's really important is if you keep reading through the Bible, what you see is that in the New Testament, Psalm 2 is attributed to Jesus. And Jesus is the true king, the one to whom all the earth must bow, the one that we must kiss. And Jesus is the one who sits at the right hand of God. He's the one who sits on the throne, at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all things. And in Psalm 110, and in 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us that the one who sits on the throne makes his enemies his footstool. This is a warning that we must bow before Jesus, the one who is king. But it's not just a warning. That's what we love. I mean, we kind of read it and we like twirl our mustache and think, oh, This is a blessing. I want you to notice, because it's not just that he comes in judgment. What does he do? It says, blessed are all who who take refuge in him. And this is important to note that King Jesus loves to bless all who take refuge in him. And so what did the Gibeonites do? The Gibeonites were blessed. Why? Because they had fled to God. 
And because they had fled to God, they received his mercy. And because they fled to God, God fought for them and he delivered them. And so if Jesus is this king, then how is it that our king fights? Well, if you've ever read the New Testament, if you've ever read the Gospels, if you've ever read the Passion accounts, which are the stories of the cross in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you'll see is that the center of all the conversations around the cross are this question of kingship. Who is the king? You'll remember that Jesus was arrested uh, because he had claimed to be the king of the Jews. And so he's arrested and what happens? Well, the soldiers begin to mock him. They, they beat him and they put what? A crown of thorns upon his head. And then they put a purple robe on his back, mocking him as this weak, nothing king. And then they send him over to King Herod, who at the time was the king of the Jews. And King Herod refused to bow before King Jesus and rejected him. He sent over to Pilate, the Roman governor, who asked, are you the king of the Jews? And then he sends him back because Jesus, if he's the king of the Jews, is just a Jewish problem. It has nothing to do with Rome. And then you'll remember that Pilate was pressed harder and harder by the authorities and, and by the religious leaders and by the people. And he becomes afraid of Caesar, who is the king of Rome. And Pilate then gives Jesus to the crowds, to the crowds in Jerusalem. Think about that, the very city where hundreds of years earlier in Joshua chapter 10, Adonai Zedek, right, the son of righteousness, right, leads his people in rebellion against Yahweh. And then what do the people in the city shout as Jesus stands before them? We have no king but Caesar. And then they nail him to the cross where he's mocked and abandoned and killed. And there's this inscription written over his head that says what? King of the Jews. How is it that our king fights for us? He gives himself. He dies in our place. And the irony of ironies is that after having been killed by the authorities of the world, they take him down and they throw him in a tomb, which at the time would have been a cave. And they roll these, this stone over the mouth of the cave. They place these soldiers there to guard the tomb. Why is that an irony? Well, look at verse 17. The five kings had been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And then look at verse 22. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmouth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. It's a brutal passage. right? But it's very important. You see, the kings of the earth went into the cave alive. And they come out with the stones being rolled away and they come out to face the judgment of God and they die. 
And though in this world they reigned and they mocked the living and true God, in the end they find themselves in the prison of their own darkness. And the stones are rolled away and they come out to face the judgment of the one with, against whom they had fought. Do you see what happens? They go into the cave alive and they come out to die. They go in alive and they come out to face the judgment of God. But our king, is amazing, our king Jesus was mocked and killed by the kings of the world, facing the judgment of this world. And he's taken down from the cross. He's put into this tomb, this cave that is sealed over with a stone guarded by the soldiers. And three days later, the stone is rolled away. And the one who is dead comes out alive. The one who then stood before the judgment seat of God, the only one who is righteous, was declared not guilty and given life again. And he walks out of this cave to live forever. And it's that king who fights your battles. It's that king who says, follow me and I will lead you through life and through death into resurrection, eternal life with the Father. See, this is that promise that all who seek refuge in the king will be blessed. But apart from him, there is only death. And that's the point of the table as well. This table is the king's table that is spread for us. And at this table, he tells us, I fight for you. At this table, he says, I have heard your cries, and he rises up to defend us. And his weapons are not the weapons of this world, but his weapons are his body and his blood. And he is a king who fights like no other, because he is a king who willingly goes before us and sacrifices himself for the good of his people. And then he spreads this table, and he says, come and feast with me that I might feed you meeting us in our hunger. He says, come to me in your weakness and I'll feed you and give you my strength. Come to me that I might lead you through life, that I might lead you through your death so you might find life in me. You see, this is the king's meal and he has given it for you so that you might come and learn more and more to rejoice in your God who faithfully fights for his people. <laughs> <laughs>